We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want will not affect 90% of the tailgaters here at uh, New Era Field. It will only affect those who come by bus or limo and park here in the bus and limo lot on Abbott Road. Now, from now on, those fans cannot tailgate next to their bus or limousine, but instead they can opt to pay an average of $15 per fan to be part of a new tailgate village, which will be right next to the bus and limo lot on Abbott Road. The new tailgate village will already have its own tables and chairs and live music. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was George Ricker from WIVB News Channel 4 Buffalo on the Bills Tailgating Changes. Chris, I, I wish, I almost wish we had a little, uh, we're talking about changes to tailgating policy, and I almost wish we had uh, Will Ferrell singing Dust in the Wind <laughs> on an acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, what a weekend, what a weekend. I mean, we've got a lot to unpack here Thank you so much for showing up for another week of our podcast. But I got to talk about something that happened this weekend that just really stuck in my craw. For a lot of reasons. You're all here because you like sports. So sit back while I recount something for you. Annual Kentucky Derby party. Every year, a friend of mine throws a party and people dress up. And it's, it's one of those kind of... I don't did know your wife you have a giant hat on? She did. She did. She actually won Best Dressed for females and won a $25 gift card to Target. Oh, <laughs> and surprisingly, you didn't win Best Dressed for males because you're immediately disqualified if you wear nice clothes from Walmart. <laughs> so we attend this party, and as we always do, there's some gambling going on in the form of everybody throws some money in. It's the Kentucky Derby. Who actually knows what the hell is going on in horse racing? You throw out a hundred grand like Brady? Jesus, no. <laughs> no, because I'm not an idiot. <laughs> so everyone throws in five bucks and you pick a horse's name out of the hat. They pass a basket of the hat around. 
And then they run the race and the winner takes the pot. For the third year in a row, third consecutive year, my horse won, all right? It was a great day. My wife just won best dressed. I'm holding on to a wad, just a fat wad of ones and fives. You know, Chris, it makes your, something about a wad of cash, if it's done in singles, it somehow makes you feel like more of a baller, even though you know it's less than a hundred bucks. <laughs> You still just feel like a millionaire. Like, I imagine that's what Tom Brady feels like when he walks over and puts down $100,000 and it's actually all just in thousands. Like, it doesn't seem like it's that much at that point. So the race is over. People are congratulating me. I'm walking out of here thinking, man, me and the wife are ballers today. Got life by the, I, I'm half a bottle of whiskey deep. This is a great day. All of a sudden, the word objection flashes across the screen. And they cut to a bunch of elderly people crowded around a bank of TVs. And that's when it hit me. Holy shit. The Kentucky Derby is going to be decided by video review. Horse racing. Replay review. Chris, we're all fucked. We are all fucked. I mean, the race took under three minutes to run and 22 minutes to review. It's outrageous, egregious, preposterous. Jackie Childs couldn't have said it better. I, I, when it was all said and done, I lost. I lost the money. I had to give it back. Now, it's only $95. And I, I really don't give a shit about $95. But a couple things. First of all, how many people out there lost more than that? First of all, the owner of the horse, Maximum Security. He went from having, in, in 20 minutes, went from having a Kentucky Derby winner to a, a horse that might get shipped off to the glue factory. For all we know, that horse is outside of the Elmer's plant right now. The jockey probably loses his job. I mean, you went from top of the world to bottom of the barrel almost immediately. And meanwhile, some long-shot horse and owner who weren't the ones actually affected by the foul somehow profit massively because of it. I'm trying to wrap my head around this, Chris. The I guy, forgot it was happening. The guy who lobbied the complaint wasn't the person who got fouled. It was just some long shot who was angling for an upside, trying to get a win and a few mil on a technicality. Is that what we're here for? Is that what sports are now? Chris, replay review is supposed to be about quote-unquote getting it right. So I understand, I don't need people to fill up our mentions with, well, you don't understand this about horse racing. You're fucking right I don't. It's horse racing. Yeah, you pay attention to it once, once every May. For three minutes. Yes. <laughs> That's literally all I care. But this is what sticks in my craw. Replay review is supposed to be about getting it right. But any team, any fan of any NFL team that's ever played the New England Patriots in, in the last 20 years can tell you, Replay doesn't always, quote-unquote, get it right. I mean, I will go to my grave. Kelvin Benjamin scored that damn touchdown. 100%. No one in the field could say otherwise. 100%. <laughs> so that's my point. What is replay reviewed? It, it's now, in, this is the first in 145 years of Kentucky Derbies. It's never been a problem. And now replay review has decided a Kentucky Derby. About time. <laughs> Are you saying that this is just the way of things now, Chris, and we yeah. should all just accept it? Yeah, it's 2019. Everything's in high definition. Uh, 
I hate saying that anything that goes on on WGR 550 is right. But Chris Parker, a.k.a. Bulldog of the Afternoon Show, once exclaimed, just exasperated, that we needed to get the biggest, most dangerous gun in the world and shoot instant replay in the face because otherwise it was going to kill us all. (laughs) Chris, he might have a point. We've lost another great American pastime to the cancer that is replay review. Can you fault me for feeling this way? Soccer has video review, but you you can't use you can review all kinds of things apparently in soccer except for Tony Award winning flops that steal tens do- dozens and dozens of minutes out of a game that is already way too long. It's just people running up and down a field kicking a ball. I mean, I watch children do that in the park. We don't call that a sport, and they don't flop half as hard as those guys. But now, Chris. We, we can't use replay for that. Hockey now has review. And in the first few years, so many goals were actually recalled for offsides that it made the referees look terrible. Do you remember that? God, that's the worst. As a hockey fan, it's the worst of them all is the ability to re- review offsides. That's the worst thing that they've done to the game. In the first year it was rolled out, so many goals got called back. And it made the referees look so bad that they had to institute a policy to deter coaches from calling it. Well, the work, the worst part. The, the <laughs> now, wor- if you call, if you challenge an offside call and you're wrong, it's a penalty. They had to penalize people for being wrong just so coaches would stop asking for it to be reviewed. Not because it was slowing the game down, but because they were getting it wrong so many times on the ice. The worst part, the worst part of it is that they do have cameras right down the blue line right now. And as far as like the TV broadcast, they don't show you those views until the the uh, replay has been called, which is absurd. If you have that camera angle, show it to us immediately. <laughs> but get rid of offside in hockey. It's the worst thing. Replay review. Then you've got baseball. Baseball's gone. They literally stopped the game to analyze t- tags to within hundredths of a second and to analyze, well, did the glo- we can't see the ball, but did the ball did the glove move as if the ball was caught inside of it when there was a who gives a shit? No one can tell. No one knows. And at the same time, Chris, this gets analyzed under replay review, but there's a fat old guy behind the plate who gets to make up his own strike zone. From one pitch to the next, and yet somehow that's not reviewable. Because of course it isn't. That would make too much sense. <laughs> football, fo- I, I mean, I, I don't know, we, we beat that horse to death. Football is obviously flawed and it's getting worse. They keep trying to tweak, well, now this will be reviewable, but only in this set of circumstances. What is and what is not a catch? You still can't define that. We don't know that. We're here analyzing every minute aspect of a football game. Chris, is there no end to the madness? Is um, there none? I mean, I don't I, know. Here's what I'll say. Curling? You assholes better get your brooms under control right now because this nonsense is coming for you next. All right? Curling. There is no putting the toothpaste back in the tube, folks. Video review isn't going anywhere. And like mono on Valentine's Day, it is spreading like wildfire. God help us all. I feel good having gotten that off my chest. 
<laughs> Chris, do you feel any better? Because I know I do. I didn't even know the Kentucky Derby was happening on Saturday. That's how much I don't care. <sighs> All right, Bills fans. I'm sorry I have to subject you to my madness. I'm going to open a fresh beer. And we are going to kind of kick off this week's Bills News Update. As you heard in the show's intro, Bills tailgating is getting a facelift. Last week, the Bills VP of Operations and Fan Experience, which is a hell of a title. Chris, how do you get VP of Fan Experience? Let's talk about that. I don't what think qualifies you, you for that job. I don't ever think I don't think I've ever seen that on Indeed.com. Hey, absolutely not. But if there is, I'm Chris. I know how to throw in hell of a party. I'm applying for that <laughs> job the second I think it becomes available. Our VP of Ops and Fan Experience, Andy Major, took to the airwaves last week in an interview with John Murphy to discuss these changes that are coming to the Bills' tailgating policy. Just a list of announcements. And the one that caught everyone's attention had to do with one of the most important things to Bills fans, from casual attendees to diehard season ticket holders, the tailgating experience. People were all riled up. I can kind of see why. Okay, first and foremost, Mr. Major, with all due respect, in his explanation of the changes, referred to the more rambunctious subset of our fan base. <laughs> the, the people that you see starring in these internet videos that get scattered all over Deadspin and Instagram and Twitter. Barstool. And travel to faraway cities and leave nothing but broken tables and empty kegs in their wake. Refer to them as knuckleheads. I mean, that's not, that's probably... If you're trying not to get a negative reaction to something, that's probably not a good way to start it. True. <laughs> he, he also discussed bringing change, no matter how minute, to one of the few things that Bills fans have had to look forward to for the last 20 years. Okay, This team has been a raging inferno of mismanagement and incompetency when it comes to roster building, ownership, when it comes to just day-to-day operations. Chris, it's been FUBAR for 20 years. Yeah, outside of that one lucky year. <laughs> so, I mean, you look at, we can we continually sold out games, despite how dysfunctional things were in the front office and out there in the football field. And the thing that got at least a third of those people to show up on game day was tailgating. Regardless of what was it, Todd Collins, Rob Johnson, to, the Saints game. Chris, they had a game where the other team didn't have to throw the football and the leading rusher, the leading rusher was, was a naked guy, was, was a naked dude just sprinting around on the field. He was the leading rusher for the Bills or their fan base. It's yeah. pathetic. I mean, you'd have to go to a hardcore tailgate to be able to enter the stadium knowing you're going to watch Thad Lewis throw a football. That's just it. Can you blame fans for wanting to get good and comfortably numb before they walk in and just watch what could be just an absolute atrocity? That was bound to get a negative reaction from some people. But I think that the depth of the outrage, I mean, now that we're, we've had some time, a few days, you know, people started tweeting at us almost immediately. Our messages filled up with people. What do you guys think about these policies? What do you think? The Bills are trying to kill tailgating. I know I may not seem like it, but I can be a pragmatic person when it matters. <laughs> so while there are a lot of hot takes out there on the topic, there's also a lot of misinformation, a lot of oversight, and there's a lot of myths out there being sold as fact. So 
before I responded to anybody, I wanted to take a few days, take some time, read through the facts, develop an opinion, and try to take a rational look at the situation to see if it can help anyone else out there get a better grasp on this. It's the same thing that we, uh, when it comes to actual games doing the podcast, we take a couple days for you to friggin', <laughs> you know, calm down, and then we go through the game. Same thing applies here. So, with that, I first want to take a... If we're going to dissect this, let's start with the scope and actual impact of the movie. First, what is it at a base level? It was announced that people who park in the bus and limousine lot would no longer be allowed to tailgate by their vehicle and instead had to report to a designated area where you've already paid for admission and you'll be admitted. There'll be booze and food and music and all kinds of things to entertain yourselves. Where you can be supervised by the authorities and security personnel so we can keep things from getting out of hand. Tailgating is not outlawed at New Era Field, nor is it going anywhere. I can say that definitively. For those of you who aren't familiar, let me create a mental map for, the, for you so that you can try to get an idea of the layout and I guess the expanse of the stadium itself and the lots that are around it. First of all, there's the RV lots. It's pretty self-explanatory. People who plan on staying the night before or the night after the game can park an RV there for a sizable parking fee. It's probably somewhere between $100 to $80. I don't know. I've never parked one over there. There's some pretty expansive parties that take place over there because people have nowhere to go and literally all day to go there. But that being said, everyone who's there is staying there. You're not going anywhere. Then there's the Bills owned parking lots. I think it's lots one through five, Chris, or is there six? I have no idea. I don't even I don't even know what one we park next to. <laughs> that would be lot one. There's a handful of lots spread around the stadium in a semicircle and across the street. They're the closest to the stadium. They're patrolled by security and local authorities and cost approximately forty five dollars a vehicle. There's a lot of regulations involved with parking there. You know, they, they if your drinking games are getting out of hand, they're gonna come over and tell you to quiet down. The cooking apparatus can be subject to question. There's no open flame. They also don't don't allow you to start parking until 9 a.m. Then why would you even go to the game? <laughs> I you don't can't know. <laughs> park. If you have to wait till 9 a.m., just stay home and watch the game. Then there's the private lots that Chris and I enjoy. The stadium is located in the middle of a residential area, so there's a lot of people who offer up their own property to tailgaters and allow them to park on their property. They can vary in cost depending on how far away you are from the stadium. 10 to $45. Ours is 45 because unless we you, are right next to the stadium. Unless you know the uh, what the code word that BB sent me. BB sent me over there in the mud lot. Get you five or ten dollars off the admission. Now, I'm so close to the stadium in that lot that I could play catch with people in a team-owned lot over this chain link fence that separates the two of them. But I have they're far more lax because it's private property. There's still private porta potties and things like that, and. It's just a more relaxing atmosphere, and they let me come and set up at sunup. Chris, how many times have we gotten there and set up before the guy was even awake and out? And no one cared. Oh, uh, that's easy. That's when we were out of the playoffs. <laughs> and then there's the bus lot. This is the lot that's affected by the new rule change. The bus lot is where anyone taking a rented transport, like a tour bus or a limo or a limo bus, that's where they have to park. The fans that are found to frequent this lot... Chris, generally speaking, this is a generalization, but I'm going to make it anyway. They are not season ticket holders, and they are not regular attendees. They're usually from 
distances far enough away that people don't want to drive. Rochester, Syracuse, Southern Canada. They're also, there's also a lot of gatherings of away fans who organize trips from out of state to come in and watch these games. Yeah, we're about, uh, what, three hours from Cleveland, three hours from Pittsburgh. So, I mean, if you're a fan of the Browns or Steelers, it's very easy to come up for a game and get home in one day. So now there's some figures and some other facts that go along with the layout. $100. That's the approximate cost to previously park a bus or limo in that parking lot, of which the team only gets a cut, with the rest of the proceeds going to All Pro Parking, which is the entity that actually oversees and executes game day parking operations. $23 million. That's the amount that the Green Bay Packers spent to build their very own tailgate village two years ago, which is doing so well in its first few years of operation that local bars and restaurants are complaining about it cutting into their profits. 90%. That's the percentage of all game day phone calls placed to EMTs, sheriffs, and state police taking place on team property that require a response to one specific area, and that's the bus and limousine lot. Chris, right there, you want to talk about trend analysis. You've got a small amount of money being made by this football team off a group of people who seem to be responsible for the majority of your franchise's issues out there in the parking lot when it comes to dangerous, just negative behavior. Are you shocked then that the team would ultimately make a move to address it? No, I'm not I'm not shocked at all. I, I think I think there's there's a dizzy bat thing on youtube of some dude doing a dizzy bat and then he face plants into a bus and i think that that was i think that was what three or four years ago i think that was the start of these viral videos from our tailgates and if you notice a lot of them are from that lot yeah so here's the thing i can see the psychology behind it it's the reason i don't attend the downtown buffalo parade and i go to the south buffalo parade instead for saint patty's day here in buffalo Downtown Buffalo is a business district, bars, uh, businesses. Nobody lives there. South Buffalo, that's a neighborhood that people live in. It's like a giant block party, and everybody who lives there is responsible to their neighbors. They have some skin in the game. Because if you get too rowdy, you get too crazy, you do anything too stupid, your neighbors are going to be there to check you because you're going to have to see them afterwards. The psychology that goes into this, that I, from my standpoint, if you're not from the immediate area, you don't necessarily care about your impact on it. And if you're not a regular attendee of games, you've got a lot less skin in the game in terms of getting in trouble, maybe being banned from the stadium property. You have less to lose than the average season ticket holder or just fan who lives in the area who likes to go to games and likes to not be on the can't buy tickets list because you're an asshole. So you throw... I don't know, five gallons of booze onto something like that, and what you're talking about is a breeding ground for this kind of behavior. So, I don't know. Uh, Chris, in all things, there is also the financial angle. (laughs) It's something that Andy Major made a point of of pointing out. You know, there's a lot of teams that are going to say that this is just a cash, fans who are going to say that this is just a cash grab. To them, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to explain this to you. It's not. Well you, well, you heard it in the intro um, from Rickert from News 4 Buffalo. Uh, he said, uh, you're going to have to go to a tailgate village at about an average. That's a key word that people might have missed in the intro. He said at an average of $15. 
to get into the tailgate village. Now, here's here's what I find interesting. I don't know if this makes me sound cynical, but anytime somebody tells me they're doing something out of a sense of civic duty, I'm almost forced to look at the dollars and cents behind the decision. I just do. Because I don't want to say I don't trust people, but I don't trust people. I don't. Parking is facilitated for the team by a third party, and the team only gets a cut of that revenue generated by the lots. This new structure, while the team will never come right out and admit it, is designed to increase the cost of parking while also forcing fans to utilize another third-party service that the team also gets a cut from. Not only that, but I looked into the structure that the Green Bay Packers utilized a few years ago when they created a tailgate village. Okay, Right now, this is ours is going to be administrated by a group called Tailgate Guys. You can Google them, you can find out what they're all about. They, they essentially offer up a hassle-free tailgate package to anyone who wants to rent them out. They'll supply your chairs, your tents, your music, your coolers. Anything you want them to bring, they'll bring, and you just bring your own food and beer. Sometimes food can be thrown in there. What this comes down to is the bills are selling out to a third party to let them run this thing so that they can supervise it and still make a couple extra shekels off of it on the side. Not only that, but any additional revenue, especially if this is conceived the way that I think it is. Chris, who do you think is going to be providing the beer and food? Beer and food. I know the team would not provide beer to its own fan base. I would, But they do in the concession stands, which makes me think that they could also make this an extension of that, much like the Green Bay Packers have done with the Johnsonville Tailgate Village. That's what they have in Lambeau. Here's what I like. When I look at the parallels between the two, the, the main complaint from businesses and other people who live in Green Bay is that the deal worked out between the team and the city of Green Bay is that any revenue generated within, within the confines of team-owned property is not subject to tax. They don't, pay county, they don't pay county and state taxes on it. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that the bills don't have a similar agreement in place. In which case, Chris, that tailgate village all of a sudden becomes a gold mine for the team. I could, I could see that, but I... I, I I can see that all these videos that Bill's front office and all these decision makers see of us pregame. <laughs> I don't think there's no way that they could. They're like, oh yeah, why don't we sell beer in this tailgate village so that we can still enhance? That maybe that might they might be in tailgate village up until like ten thirty, and then they might bounce to another tailgate, and then somebody jumps through a table and breaks their leg. Chris, I'm essentially looking at this like the team is killing two birds with one stone. They get to put some extra cash in their pockets and also supervise a section of the fan base that regardless of how many hits they get on the internet, have become a problem. Okay, Between the bus and limo companies complaining about them, local law enforcement clearly isn't happy about it, they've both thrown their support behind this move. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that for a fan base, for a, a franchise that's trying as creatively as possible to generate new revenue to illustrate that a new stadium might not be necessary. This model of a tailgate village concept that's working out so well for the Packers, this may have played a role in this decision and may be part of <laughs> leading into this whole stadium discussion. Whether the team takes it to the length that the Packers did and where they build an actual facility and they sell the naming rights to it and it becomes this massive complex, 
that's going to depend on its overall success. But the fact remains, change is coming, whether we as fans like it or not. And it seems like the team is certainly being pragmatic about the way they're enforcing it because they've found a problem. They're not only going to fix what they view as a problem, but they're also going to make a few bucks off of it. If anything, that's smart business. Now, here's the question, Chris, as a fan. Are these changes such a bad thing? I mean, let's look at the scope of the impact. Who is actually affected by this? Bill's own lots, just the normal parking lots, unaffected by this. RV lots, no impact. The private lots, there's no way the team can impact them. Team policy does not extend off of the property. So even though for as close as you and I are to the actual facility, they can't tell us what to do. And the owner of our lot has flat out said that they send out representatives every year and come go door to door asking people in the neighborhood to help them enforce their policies. And he laughs them off his front porch every year because he knows what a moneymaker this is for him. And he also employs a team of personnel to help him keep it under control. Chris, you've seen that with your own two eyes. Yeah, this is my first year seeing all of this. I mean, I mean, as a one year under my belt as a season ticket holder, I have never seen any of the things that happen on Deadspin happen on Barstool. The closest was with the Jet or either the Jet or the Lions game where that we have the we have an RV, an old school RV that parks in our lot, and they. If you know, if you're familiar with the mud lot, this RV parks in the middle, in the middle, and this jet or Lions game, I can't remember which one it was, some of the women would just go behind the RV and pee like no one could see them. <laughs> that was the closest barstool dead, deadspin-esque thing that happens in our lot. I, I've never seen it anywhere except the internet i've got a decade of hardcore tailgating under my belt i live for this stuff at our tailgates is everyone is anyone really 100 percent sober at our tailgates no no everyone drinks and has a good time well you might get like dan and not make the bears game (laughs) well that's because he was chugging moonshine (laughs) because he apparently doesn't like football or his liver does everybody seem to have a pretty good time so long as i'm not yelling at them about how they packed the truck (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah who puts a table on top of a smaller table? <laughs> yeah, so. Chris, I apologize for that. I still feel bad about that today. See, folks, the fact is that version of tailgating, the throwing yourself off of t- tall buses and happens at one, setting yourselves on fire happens at 1% or less of tailgate. That's not what that is for everyone here, and I'm okay with that. I mean, To me, personally, tailgating is like church. I know that may seem blasphemous, at some point every day, I, you know, we get everything set up and I, you know, everyone's drinking and having a good time. And I just kind of, you know, usually as the, it's as the sun's coming up because we get there at about 6.30, yeah, 6.45 six, six, in the morning. 6, 6.30. I'm, you, we're usually there before sunup. And I like to take a minute and just kind of sit on the roof of my truck and just kind of watch the sun coming up over the trees and see the stadium because it's still kind of glowing and it's lit. And I don't know. It's one of the most peaceful places on earth for me and it just it's a it's a place i can go and i can reflect and i can just think about what matters to me and the fact that i'm going to spend the day with people that matter to me and then once the sun comes up you get fucking ripped (laughs) (laughs) well here's the thing i've made friendships with people that i don't even in this parking lot that not even knowing their names the beer distributor and his friends, the ones who got their van stuck last year. That's what I was going to go, go with help first. Them out. The, the van where you offer these guys, no help. These guys actually go to every game. It's like, but you don't know these people by name, but you know them by face. 
and everybody gets together and you just, or the Patriots fan who we cook breakfast for his kids and he leaves us with pounds of leftover spaghetti and meatballs. It's, there's a camaraderie involved in tailgating. If you do it long enough and you do it well enough. And that's what drives me. That's what gets me there. Not trying to embarrass myself for likes on social media. But if, well, if you do see that or any anything of that nature, you will take their food platter. <laughs> Listen, I've been known to do some questionable things to people who subscribe to that. But here's the thing. In not just tailgating, but almost every aspect of life, I have a pretty standard policy. If what you're doing or the good time that you're trying to have isn't actively having a negative impact on anyone around you, you could do whatever the hell you want. But when you're putting other people's property in danger, like the bus and limo drivers or the, the companies that own them, whose equipment might be surrounded by all kinds of debauchery or the team's liability insurance policies, which when they're, Chris, when the team's insurance premiums go up, you know who pays for that? You and me in the form of ticket cost increases, more expensive concessions, parking increases. Or if you're actively putting other people around you in danger who are innocent bystanders, when you set yourself on fire and go running around a parking lot, that's not funny. That's dangerous. Someone could get killed. Someone could get hurt. Other people who weren't involved in your horse shit could get wrapped up in it. So I know there's a lot of you out there who see the videos and think it's funny. I don't have a whole lot of tolerance for that. I just don't. Plus, it, again, does not happen all of the time. <laughs> so, it only happens in the grass lot on Southwestern. And apparently in this in the bus and limo lot. Yeah, because nobody wants to see anybody doing a shooting star press off a fucking bus. <laughs> so ultimately, where we've landed on this, guys, you can be upset about this if you want to. You can take the track of tailgating is under assault and we're never going to be able to have fun. No, you can have fun. You can do whatever you want. But the fact is this change and whatever changes may come in the future are all going to share a consistent theme. <laughs> a, they're not going to impact most Bills fans on a week-to-week basis. B, it sounds like they, they're rooting out the cause of a lot of problems and they're going to be making money in the process, which ultimately helps the team. And C, if you're not an asshole, you don't have anything to worry about. Right? 100%. Reinforces the idea of don't be an asshole. And at the end of the day, I think that's a theory we can all subscribe to. And I'll drink to that, Chris. Cheers. Folks, I know that they may seem more like a diatribe than news, but I'm glad that I have this outlet to get it off my chest. And hopefully some of you found some of this information a little bit enlightening. I mean, it's ultimately for the best, I think. I, I personally don't care. Even if the unintended impact is that more people flee those lots and come to a lot like ours, which causes the price to increase, I don't care because I can pay it and I will. Chris, if they doubled the, the cost of our lot, $90 a week, I'd pay it. Yeah. The amount of money I make would hurt your parents' feelings. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'll say this. I know that for the experience I have, it's just... I don't have to deal with that, and my life is better for it. And so if other people out there can have their Sundays not ruined by it, hey, and the team can make some money, which might ultimately help them stay here, more power to them. Now, changing gears. This last six, seven weeks, Chris, has been all about the NFL draft. And really, we've dissected everything we can, but I think it's time to close this 
on a note of the division, because ultimately that's what matters. You want to be competitive in the NFL, you have to do well within your division. Exactly. Hey, do you want to host a, a playoff game? Well, you got to win your division. Exactly. Do you want to always be the team that's scratching for a wild card spot? No. So year after year, you're trying to size yourself up next to everyone else in your division. We have the unfortunate, the unfortunate luck to be saddled with a division that has a first ballot Hall of Fame head coach and quarterback in Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. So we're kind of relegated to scratching out a wild card spot. But with that said, it's always interesting to take a look back and see how all of the other teams stack up post-draft in the division after we've dissected the hell out of our own, just to see how they stack up with what we think we've accomplished. And so, folks, as we launch into what is, the, I think in my mind, the final nail in the coffin here for the Rock Pile Report podcast when it comes to draft conversation, we have one of our favorite guests joining us. Travis Wingfield. Soccer style kicker. Graduated from Collier High, June 1976. Stetson University Honors graduate, class of 1980. Holds two NCAA Division I records, one for most points in a season, one for distance. Former nickname the Mule, the first and only pro athlete ever to come out of Collier County and won a hell of a model of America. Locked on Dolphins podcast. But this is Miami now. Mr. Wingfield, how are we doing this evening? Cannot complain one bit. The sun is shining out here in beautiful Washington State, and I am thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah, folks, we, we get on Skype with him, and he's wearing, like, a cutoff T-shirt. I'm just like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you could have done that today if you didn't go to work. This is the nicest day that we've had in a while, and I still can't do that. I mean, I might, just out of spite, but it's not comfortable. So, <laughs> so damn it, Travis. How are you doing, sir? I mean, everything's good out here, dude. I just got married about a month ago, so that's that's all going well. Getting used to wearing this ring on my finger. Uh, the wife hasn't changed, so that's good. I was worried about that, but we're good on that front. That's what and, we were going to uh, ask. Just getting ready for ready for a, a rough dolphin season ahead, man. It's going to be a long one, but I'm here for it. As they say, a lot of things have changed since the last time you've been on the podcast. You are now officially yeah. a married man. What was the wedding like? Come on, spill. It was in Hawaii, so, I mean, perfect. Serene, as always. Um, had like six of my best friends there, groomsmen, so that was a, a great time. But I didn't know this Kauai, the, the garden island, as it were, shuts down like at 9 o'clock. So there's like no nightlife there, which isn't the worst thing in the world because coming off of West Coast time, it goes three hours backwards. So I was on the midnight body clock, but you couldn't like go to a bar past 9 o'clock. I thought that was pretty weird. What? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, we're nixing that from the vacation list. That place is out. <laughs> Well, I thought Hawaii. Let's go to the island over. I thought Hawaii is the uh, Miami of the West. <laughs> is that not right? Well, there, I mean, there's certain islands. Kauai is just like the one that's really secluded and doesn't have that stuff. But if you go to like Honolulu, there's like a metropolis and and you know debauchery right up your guys's alley. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that sounds a little more my speed. And then <laughs> I, I was looking on, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and I guess I have to bring this up. So when we first met you, when we first started doing podcasts together, I think you were still freelance writing. I think you were still working for FanRag. And it's funny because we had an intro for you, and then you moved. And so we, Chris reworked your intro, and then you moved to another outlet. And so we eventually it turned into this thing of, we, we don't even know where the hell Travis works, but he's here. He's here to talk to us tonight. <laughs> so now you've moved on to Locked on Dolphins. And since we've started doing this, you've now, now you're getting offers for press credentials. 
your, I mean, obviously your work at Locked On Dolphins, you've kind of blown up over there. I mean, you've taken on all kinds of new responsibility. You've really kind of risen through the ranks. And I saw you tweet something about how your podcast, when you look at sports podcasts in the entire world, according to what is it, iTunes, you're somewhere in the 80s. Is that right? Yeah, right after the draft concluded, we were 81st on the top 200 in sports and recreation, and that was the highest we'd gotten. So I was, and I say we, like someone else is involved, but it's, I mean, <laughs> I write it, I produce it, I record it. So, I mean, it's it's my podcast, but man, it's it's really cool to see where it's gone from here. And over the draft weekend, too, we did like 50,000 page views in two days on LockedOnDolphins.com, so that was pretty exciting as well. Things are going good, man. If this team ever gets good, I can't even imagine what it'll be like. Chris, they grow up so fast. Oh, I know. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I bet, if, I bet if, if you could look if you could look up on iTunes for most uh, most downloaded sports podcasts that say the word fuck at least ten times, we would be number one. I don't even know about that because I mean I'm assuming there's people far drunker and far less nuanced than we are out there. But having said that, that's a huge accomplishment and congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and so with that, let's let's get a little AFC East draft talk. This year, the AFC East, I, I don't know. It's when you take a look around the draft and what each team accomplished, what their needs were. I mean, it's no secret that the Patriots have run this division and that around them, this division hasn't been very good. I mean, so, I mean everyone talks about the Patriots' dominance and how they're, you know, they're always in the postseason. Well, the AFC or East around them hasn't done a whole lot to make that difficult. I mean, we've been pretty good at padding their win totals. So, so coming into this offseason, this represented a real opportunity for growth for all of the franchises in the division to either try to keep pace if you're the Patriots or to try to catch up and close some of that gap. So it's interesting to take a look at what each team accomplished during this phase of the offseason. Now, I want to start with the New England Patriots. When you went, Coming into this draft... They had some needs in the front seven of their defense. You know, they, they, they really do need an impact defensive tackle. They needed pass rushers, especially since losing Trey Flowers. Um, they needed help at wide receiver because I don't think they've had a wide receiver, a name wide receiver outside of Julian Edelman in probably the last four or five seasons. And then Gronk retired and they didn't draft a tight end. And to a lesser extent, you could maybe say cornerback. I mean, their secondary had some names returning from previous seasons, so it was kind of a lesser thing now do you think that do you think that they did a good job of addressing those things i tend to think that they did because the patriots are always just going to adapt to the personnel they have and that was that's what makes me so jealous of them as a fan of another team and a fan of a team in their own division because without gronkowski and like you mentioned they didn't actually draft a tight end and they didn't really pursue it in free agency they'll probably just take tight ends off the field and just go with more running backs and more receivers like Nikhil harry like damian harris and the stable of backs they already have in-house. So I look at this draft class, and to me, there's three teams that really run a similar scheme, both, I guess, offensively and defensively, is the Patriots, and it's the Patriots, now the Dolphins, and now the Lions because of Patricia and Brian Flores. And I'm looking at their draft class, and it's got all all these names that I had penciled into the Dolphins for their picks, and of course Miami doesn't take any of my guys, and the Patriots just run through this thing and take like five of my favorite guys from this draft class. So... You know, it's typical Patriots fashion. They did it again. I just don't see them going away until Belichick and Brady are both gone, man. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, when you took, uh, you just hit a name that stands out to me as one of the most notable selections of their entire draft class in wide receiver Nikhil Harry. Now, 
when you watched wide receivers, I mean, that was a conversation that we had. That you know, you you looked at this draft thinking there was talk of DK Metcalf going to the Bills at nine. There was, you know what I mean. And then if not at nine, there's no way the Redskins could pass on him, or this team could pass, or the Ravens could pass. And instead, he ended up being a third round pick. And wide receivers were widely neglected in this draft to the point that another first round talent, Hakeem Butler, or at least a guy who was talking about being in the first round talent. He, I think he was a th- late third? First pick of the fourth round. Okay. So with that said, you look at Nikhil Harry, the first wide receiver off the board, and I'll tell you what, I, I had no choice but to stay up for the end of the draft because one of our listeners sent us some beer, and it was a 10.8% milk stout that I decided was a good idea to Bourbon drink. Bourbon milk stout. At like 11 o'clock at night, and it actually gave me the spins for the first time in years. That oh, was, no. Yeah. So my wife went to bed at 11 o'clock as the draft is still rolling on. And I looked at her. I'm like, I, I can't go to bed. <laughs> I can't lay down right now. So she went to bed <laughs> and I'm watching this draft unfold. And then I see the Patriots pick this giant wide receiver. And it just infuriated me because he's going to do for them a lot of the same things that Gronk did. To your point, this may be the time that they say, okay, we ran with two twin tight end sets for so long because we had the personnel to do it. Now we have this monster wide receiver who he's not going to be a giant downfield threat just because of his speed and you know his skill set, but he's still a matchup nightmare for linebackers and safeties when you try to put him in the intermediate areas of the field and in the seam. I have no doubt in my mind that this becomes one of those guys who fills that need. And it just, it just makes me sick. <laughs> he doesn't only win in the short areas like you mentioned, which he definitely does, which is perfect for that scheme and perfect for that quarterback. But I think he also can replace some of what they did with Corderell Patterson in terms of using him as a ball carrier, using him on jet sweeps, doing him, or throwing the ball to him on the screen game. He's so damn good at, the, at breaking tackles early in the route and early in the play that why not use him in that, in that same mold they use Patterson with. And it's not the same style in terms of speed, but he can break tackles and, and make a lot of mess that way too. So I look at him, and I'm sure you're going to bring up some more guys in this list, but it's like you said, it's just it's clockwork with this team. They find guys that fit what they want to do, and they plug it in, and it just every single year turns over and over and over again. Well, with that said, nobody's draft is perfect. And then every time, every now and again, you watch a team that just, I mean, in everyone's draft, unless you're Mike Mayock, you will inevitably hit one out of the park. So with that said, <laughs> the best and worst picks for the Patriots, who do you think was their best pick of this draft class? The best one was easy for me because I had the Dolphins picking him in the first round after a couple of tradebacks, and that was Chase Winovich out of Michigan. The guy is a perfect Patriot. I mean, he's a high-motor guy. He's got really good pass rush skills and nuance that way. He has an arsenal of counter moves and original or initial moves, and I just think that he's going to be a perfect scheme fit for them and do what they want to do with that pass rush, which isn't based on individual rushers as much as the scheme. So I think Winovich in the third round at pick 77 – was ridiculous value, especially since it became or came off the board one pick in front of the Dolphins. I was beside myself because we had just taken a running back. We took a running back. Oh yeah, you face planted <laughs> into that table. We were doing a TV show <laughs> at a at a casino and racetrack, and I flipped my tablet and put my head down because I just couldn't believe it. And I had just gotten done saying this pick will be the one that makes this thing either a stand up double or a home run. And we take a running back, and a few picks later, Chase Winovich comes off the board. Chase Winovich, to me, is, I think he's a very Belichickian pick because when you look at what he was doing in, in college, you know, forget about the you know, variety of pass moves, forget about everything he did in college. You just look at his makeup. He's an intelligent player. He's an intelligent, athletic player who can absorb, because like you said, that defensive front is, 
It's like the Spartan Phalanx. It'll take on whatever shape they need it to. Right. And so with that, he's a player who's smart enough and has that high motor that I'm never, you know, that there's no quit in his game. His motor runs hot all the time. So between intelligence and just his just will to keep making plays, you can slot him in all over the place in a defensive front like that. And he's an absolute tool for that defense. And they got him in the third round, which is a ridiculous value. I mean, he was on the top 40 of most draft pundits big boards. That's not to say that their draft didn't have flaws. <laughs> if there was a pick you didn't like, wh- where would you land? I think the easy one is to go to the quarterback just because is he ever going to play? I mean, how long does he take to develop, and how long is Brady going to be here? And plus, on top of that, Stidham's career in Auburn was not good. He was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, but he was not a good player under Gus Malzahn there at Auburn. So that one kind of gives me some pause. But I'll go with Jawan Williams, the cornerback out of Vanderbilt, just because I liked a lot more corners in this class opposed to him and I thought that came right after a run on cornerbacks where they started coming off the board hot and heavy and I think the Patriots even though he was kind of rumored to go to them in the first round possibly I think they may have kind of reached on him a little bit and went too high for him and I'm not sure that he fits kind of the zone man hybrid scheme they want to run so I'll go with Jawan Williams or second round pick with Jarrett Stidham in the fourth round as kind of the the honorable mention see I've got two my first one's running back Damian Harris and then I think he was her third round pick and then punter Jake Bailey is my honorable <laughs> mention. Because first of all, you drafted a fucking punter. You drafted a, a punter. What are we, Chris, a punter. I don't, I don't question it. They've been running the division for almost 20 years. A punter. I don't care I don't how question, smart you are. I don't question it. Anytime you draft a punter, it's going to get panned by Drew Gear. You do not draft <laughs> punters anytime before the seventh round. If you do, it will get panned. Boo. With that said, the Damian Harris pick makes no sense to me. Okay, You take a third-round draft pick. You're looking at the draft that you have, or maybe it was a fourth, Chris. Am I, am I reading this correctly? Take they had a look. three third-round picks, and he was one of them. Okay, so he was one of their third-round picks. He was actually the, he was the second third-round pick. The thing I don't understand, as a guy who watched Damian Harris's entire career at Alabama, he, you're, you're talking about a team that just took Sony Michelle in the first round to be your workhorse back. You have James White to, and Rex Burkhead, both of whom kind of fit that satellite role, change of pace role that you have on your roster. And they've all proven they can do it in an NFL level. Harris does a lot of things well, but he's like, the, he's the epitome of jack of all trades, master of none. And so with that, you spent a third round pick on a guy who essentially does a watered-down version of what every other guy on your roster does. <laughs> and I don't understand how that provides your team value. I mean, does that make and sense? And not to you? mention, there, there was, yeah, there was times in Alabama where Najee Harris was the guy over him, and then late in the year, and probably should have been the entire time, Josh Jacobs was the guy over Harris. So you could argue that maybe in totality, he might have been the third best running back on the Bama team that, you know, over the course of those years. Oh yeah, no, it was, it's just questionable. I mean, even, even geniuses like Chris wants to crown them because they won the division sometimes get it wrong. And I feel like those two picks are head scratchers. So now when you look at this class in total, you're talking about, they got, uh, you know, they got some value here and they, they obviously had a lot of draft picks. They had three third round picks and ultimately they had five in the top three rounds. When you look at their projected impact on 2019, I mean, for as long as Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are in New England, to your point, they're never going to have holes that are considered glaring. 
And they're never going to reach. They're going to take value every single time because as a franchise, they don't have to. I mean, you have the benefit of the two of two of the three or four most impactful people in the NFL are on one team. That's just not fair. (laughs) (laughs) They did what they do every year. They stood pat and let a lot of talented players fall to them. But when I look at the impact in 2019, I see, you know, you've got a linebacker and Chase Winovich and Nikhil Harry, you know, who in your first three rounds, if you got two legitimate A, these guys could start. Great. Wonderful. Beyond that, I don't really see a whole lot of 2019 impact. If anything, this almost seems like they're setting up for prospects that need a lot of seasoning. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, and that's what they do. And that's why, as Chris mentioned, they've ran the division for 20 years because I'm looking at this fourth-round draft pick here, and I'm going to butcher his name. He's Dutch. The Halte Froholt guard from Arkansas. That guy can play some football, man, and I had him on the Dolphins' radar. But they're going to lose Joe Tooney this offseason, their left guard, who's one of the better guards in the NFL. He's probably going to walk in free agency, and they're going to probably get a third-round comp pick for him, and they're going to turn around and plug Froholt in and play left guard for him, and they probably won't skip a beat. And that's just why I think this team is the unstoppable force that they are because they're one of the few teams that has the luxury where they can plan for future assets, like you mentioned, and it doesn't really affect them in the interim because they're going to find guys that can do what Tom Brady needs them to do on offense and what Bill Belichick needs them to do on defense. And it's just with those two guys, they have so much luxury to take swings like this and to push things back into the future, you know, down the road to future seasons. And they did it again, in my opinion. So the impact this year may be minimal, except for those two spots, like you mentioned. But I look at this list and I see three, four, five, maybe six contributors on this draft list long term for the Patriots. Jesus Christ. And I mean, then, then, and then not to mention the you know the Nikhil Harry pick. I think that that and Yadni Kajus are probably the two that I, I. To your point, you're talking about developmental offensive linemen. Marcus Cannon's yep. getting older, and he's he's getting paid a lot of money. If you could take a developmental tackle that people were high on pre-draft, and plug him in, I guess you're right. You're kind of swinging me around to this concept that their draft might have been better than I'm giving it credit for. <laughs> But then I think to me the cardinal thing was Nikhil Harry. I mean, he's so important because his skill set is going to change the way they approach the post-Gronkowski era of offense here. It's been a long time since we had to see a Patriots team that didn't have that physical presence in the wide in the receiving game. You know, they always had that go-to mismatch. Well, it seems like if they use him properly and if they bring him along, he could absolutely be that guy. I mean, it, it's hard to look at the Patriots draft class and see how they might have done better drafting at the end of the, each and every friggin' round. But either way, they're the Patriots, and so fuck those guys. Oh, I hate them. I hate them. Chris, under over on how many times I get up and leave my seat during the Bills Patriots game this year. Uh, it'll it'll be it'll be up there, but I mean, if if I could throw my final two cents in on the Patriots, I would uh, I would like Chase Winovich to have the career of Teddy Bruschi, heart attack included. Oh, geez. oh my god! <laughs> Leave it to the Rockpile Report to get dark over here. Jesus, I th- I think it was a stroke, but hey, get heart attack, stroke, all good measure. <laughs> wow. All right, well, with that, we are going to move on. The New York Jets. Now, the Jets are an interesting franchise because they have, if you were talking about quarterbacks that were drafted in 2017, 
You could argue they have the one with – people argued over who, who which quarterback should be the number one pick. And a lot of people believed Sam Darnold was the best out of the crop. Obviously, Baker Mayfield was the first pick, but a lot of people believe that Darnold was long-term going to have the best career, just based on his skill set, based on his footwork, based on his upside. So with that, you take a look at a team who, this is his second year. Last year, with that guy under center, I mean, he did miss some time with injury, but your team wasn't very good. So you fired your coach, you brought in a new head coach, a new head coach with an extravagant system that's going to revitalize this guy's career, it's going to get him off the ground, you know, the coach is going to excel, this wide receiver wide receiver group is going to come to form, all of these fantastic things are going to happen for him. But free agency and the draft have to fall into place first before you can really do that, because you don't end up with a third overall pick by accident. You have to be pretty friggin' bad to be dra- drafting any season in the top five. So when they come into this draft, they had needs. Some of them were on defense, like your edge rushers, the cornerback position, because they're, they're older, they're a little long in the tooth, and you could argue ineffective. Tremaine Johnson got a ton of money from that team and didn't really perform all that well. But then you looked at their offensive tackle and offensive <laughs> interior offensive line, and you got to question what's going on there. And as someone who watched, you know, watched things develop with Adam Gase and his system previously, would you, would you say that that's something that has to be addressed if you're going to run that system and that scheme properly? The interior offensive line? Yes. So it's pretty funny you mentioned that because for three years, Adam Gaze made it a point to say that the offensive guard position in this offense is just not that important. And we're going to put you know bottom line resources into that position. And that's how you wind up starting, I think it was 17 guards and centers over the last three years on the Dolphins roster because guys got hurt, they were ineffective, and they had to replace them time and time again. And then finally in 2018, he finally goes out and signs Josh Sitton to a considerable contract, and he plays one game and gets hurt for the entire season, and we're back on that guard wheel of mediocrity, which has been a problem in Miami for a long time. So the fact that he's bringing that exact same system or that exact same mindset to New York with the former coaches he brought with him, with Luke Falk, my boy from WSU, go Cougs, bringing him over from the Dolphins the day after he gets cut, it just tells me that he has not learned a damn thing. And how could he have learned a thing after spending, what, a week on the unemployed list or on the <laughs> unemployment line? So I just think the Jets totally botched everything they were doing this year by hiring Adam Gase. He needed to go down. He needed to go back and be an offensive coordinator and kind of get some humble pie you know, in his life mm-hmm. for a year and try to go back to the head coaching ranks after that. And the fact that he got thrown in and chased that taco around the Jets media room with his eyes in the press conference, it's just, he's to me, he's going to be so over his head, in over his head. And I like what Darnold does as far as the mental processing aspect and what type of quarterback he is. But I think that ultimately, the fact that Gaze won't last more than a year or two, in my opinion, is going to ultimately hamper what he does and his growth and development. So all things said, I think it's a disaster for the Jets personally. Fantastic. Now, this, and I, I tend to feel this way when I'm looking at their draft class. Because let, let's face it, their GM isn't exactly putting on a master class either. I mean, the, the, Mike McCagnan is, when you looked at their needs, and then you look at their draft, there's a lot of questions here. I know that most major outlets, if you looked, I, I saw B-minuses, you know, obviously draft day grades are meaningless. We talk about that all the time. What I like to look at is, you had holes, what did you do to address them? And if you didn't address your holes, did you at least draft talented football players? When I look at this Jets class, the notable selection is probably Quinn and Williams. 
to me, I mean, I watched him play in Alabama. He is a lock to be an impact defensive tackle, which sucks for everybody in the division. It does, because that's something you're going to have to worry about. He's, he's going to be an impact player because his size combined with his athleticism, is go, he's going to be disruptive. If you're a team like the Dolphins, I mean, that right now I'm not going to talk about Mitch Morse because I haven't seen him take a snap, so I'm not going to talk about him being great. But if you're a team with a questionable interior offensive line, this guy is going to give you problems on a weekly basis twice a season. So for, from our standpoint, I think that this was a great pick for them because it addresses a need and also hurts your opponents who may have questions across the division on the interior of their offensive lines. With that said, though, I, I, I don't really know what to make of this class. I mean, before I get into my full synopsis, best and worst pick, if you had to name one of each. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Quinn Williams. Like you mentioned, a, an instant impact player on the defensive line. I just don't see him being a bad player at this level. He's good at everything he does, and that was the obvious choice to me at that spot. Could have been the first player taken in the entire draft for my money. So Quinn Williams is the easy one. I'll say Chuma Adoga, the offensive tackle from USC, I think would be my other option for best pick just because I saw a lot of his work at the Senior Bowl. I thought he does a great job getting into sets. He has the aptitude to pick up stunts and loopers and that type of thing. I think that goes a long way in today's NFL. As far as the worst pick, and it goes back to Adam Gaze and not being able to manage personalities or not being able to manage guys that don't want to work as hard as him. And he said before that if guys aren't willing to put in the work that he does, he bails instantly on that player. And I don't blame him for that. But Ja'Kai Polite was a guy that got kicked out of the combine. And for a, by all accounts and reports, they said that he was awful in every single aspect of the you know, pre-draft, post-season interview process and all that fun stuff. So how fitting is it that he goes to a coach who has this horrible track record of not being able to deal with personality? So I think Chuma, or not, uh, Ja'Kai Polite in the third round, pick 68, he was supposed to be a first-round pick. He fell that far because of the uh, post-season post pre-draft process. I think that that's a guy that they might have a hard time finding the character and the personality to get onto the field it, like at all. Well, and you actually make an excellent point here. I mean, I'm looking at the Giants draft right now. First of all, they came into this draft hamstrung for picks. And they use it. They obviously, you have the number three overall pick. You're going to get a talented player unless you're the 49ers and take Solomon Thomas. I mean, unless you're <laughs> them and you make that pick, you're going to get a guy with skill. So it's hard for them to screw up Quinnen Williams. The polite one was a head-scratcher to me just in the sense that on value alone, okay, if I'm going to give a best pick, that's the only reason I picked him as my best one. I don't like a whole lot of what the Jets did here. He was talked about as a borderline second-round talent. Then he has all of his off-the-field bullshit. Considering how badly they needed a pass rush, I can see why Mike McCagnan might be just say, okay, this is a value. This is a value for us, him being here based on maybe the way our board was originally constructed. So let's take a swing on him. Now the question becomes, can he keep his nose clean? And can he prove that, I mean, because his lack of, you know, lack of personality, lack of adaptability to the coaching staff, lack of willingness to work, lack of ability to play the run. Are these going to be things that kind of relegate his career to a backup or just a guy who rubs Gase the wrong way? I don't know. I really don't know. But the worst pick wasn't him, <laughs> shockingly enough. Because you figure people who are drafted in the fourth round or later, what are the odds that they're going to be an impact player for you? 
I mean, not good. I mean, the first round's fifty percent as it is. So if you go every round, you go back, you lose at least ten or fifteen percent. I, I assume you're talking about Trayvon Wesco, the tight end. That was, was the that, one that just blew my mind. That you, dude's a fullback. That's not a tight end, by the way. That's I, what I'm I, saying. I, I know he played tight end, but he's definitely playing fullback in the NFL. And Gaze doesn't use a fullback. No, he never used a fullback in Miami. So I don't know what the hell that means. You have an offensive system that doesn't call for a fullback. You dra- you have a very good starting tight end in Brandon Copeland. You have other tight ends on the roster who could probably provide you an impact and have some, at least have some NFL experience. This pick makes no sense. You took a tight end in the fourth round that essentially is a throwback style player. He doesn't catch the ball well. He blocks. Okay, that's great. So do offensive linemen. You want to run off the line? You you run a jumbo package. Lance Zerline of the NFL Network had Trevon Wesco pegged as a Late round to potential camp body, UDFA style. Said he would need a lot of seasoning if he was ever going to come around in the passing game. When you look at the Bills, you know, you can try to pan us, I know I did, for trading up to draft a tight end like Dawson Knox. At least that pick can get blamed on just a lack of upside currently on our roster at the position. You liked what the guy was athletically and you think you can mold him. Or you just point the numbers that we have. We only have three tight ends on the roster. You're not going into camp with three tight ends. You're going to need to find another guy somewhere. But when you look at the way the Jets are constructed, the fact that they essentially took, took this pick and got a guy who only knows how to block and brings you nothing in the passing game is just oh, that's a that, that's a classic McCagnan pick. I, I just don't know any other way to spin it. There's no way for me to put it in a positive light. Would you agree with that? It's akin to Christian Hackenberg in the second round, like you mentioned, just kind of throwing a position of need at the, at the dartboard there, I guess. But then, you, like you mentioned, tight end, you did, Chris Herndon's there too, so I don't really know what the plan is to get Wesco on the field, if they're going to actually use him as an H-back or whatever they might want to use him as. I just know that offense is 11 personnel, you know, one back, one tight end, and three receivers. That's their, that's their bread and butter personnel, mm-hmm. and Gaze is very rarely going to get away from that. So where does he actually factor into this team long term and I like you mentioned I had Wesco as like a sixth round option as a fullback for Miami who now does use a fullback this time around with you know Brian Flores and Chad O'Shea in town so yeah that was a couple rounds too high and like you said where the hell does he play that's the easy one for me to pick out there aside from the fact that Ja'Kai Polite is kind of a turd too so (laughs) maybe the maybe the Jets just don't don't know how to do this whole thing and it wouldn't surprise me because Mike McCagnan has been doing this for a while now He's been doing it, and him doing it has never yielded a winner. And I guess that's the – and so I guess that's where if I'm going to try to put together a synopsis on what I feel about their class and what I think about the upside of them heading into 2019, this class is extremely boom or bust. And I'm sorry, but for a GM who, in my opinion, shouldn't be walking around feeling like he has the latitude to try to hit home runs. I mean, this is a guy who should be taking every single he can get instead of swinging for the fences on all these picks. He's got two years remaining on his contract, and he he's on his second head coach and third quarterback since Mike McCagney was hired. He's notorious for drafting poorly in the later rounds of the draft. You know, obviously he's gotten good value out of guys like Jamal Adams. And out of, obviously, Quinn and Williams represents one of the best players, probably the best player from a pure talent perspective in this entire draft. But I don't understand. I don't know what the plan was coming into this draft or how this board was constructed. Can you see it? 
I, they, I, I want to say they just went with who they thought was the best player available on the board because Quinnen right there definitely was. I think Polite, like you and I talked about, could have been a second, maybe first-round draft pick before all the stuff happened, of course. And then Adoga, to me, is one of the better tackles in the draft. And then Wesco, that kind of throws that entire theory into you know orbit. But Blake Cash from the linebacker out of Minnesota was one of the surest tacklers in this draft as well. So I think they probably were just going after value. But then again, like you mentioned, this is a guy that needs to get wins this year because if he doesn't hit a certain mark this year, McCagney's gone. And then what do you do with Gaze? You keep him around and bring on another GM who's going to not be you know, married to the head coach. I just hope that trend continues and they continue to kind of go one by one and replace one guy at a time when they should just really wipe the whole thing clean and start it all over. I mean, we talked about trying to dra- I mean, we talked about trying to draft players that help your team both in the immediate season and then also in the future. What I see here are four out of the five picks that they actually had at their disposal. Four of these guys are going to come here with massive concerns about either skill set translation, size, or character. Okay? Not only that, but they went out in free agency with a strategy that I mean, if we can say was flawed at best, they threw cash around at easily replaceable positions and yet failed to address things like offensive tackle and interior offensive line. That's If you're trying to get a new offense up off the ground, it's probably not a good idea to let your offensive line get worse in front of those playmakers, Right. That's the entire Adam Gase tenure, man. That's what happened throughout the course of his three years at Miami, and it doesn't surprise me he's doing it now. And, I mean, you talk about the fact that they went crazy in free agency. The guy that left them at the altar probably did them a favor because they were going to pay an outside non-rush linebacker to go in there and do what exactly? And you pay C.J. Mose, like you mentioned, these positions that are not really that high paid as far as NFL salaries go, and they go out and spend buku bucks on C.J. Mosley and tried to do it with Anthony Barr yeah, man, I don't, I don't see the plan there, and I think the Jets probably could be better than the Dolphins this year. I actually tend to rank, you know, there's always these tiers in the AFC East, right? The Patriots are untouchable. The three of us are jockeying for second place. To me, the Bills are pretty secure in that second place range, and then it's the Jets and Dolphins battling for, you know, the, whatever the, the antithesis of, of, uh, of infamy is, or I guess of supremacy is <laughs> in that position. So, I, I mean, I look at what they're doing here. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. There's no plan, but at least to me, Miami at the bottom of that heap has a, a long-term plan in place that I can see, and it's actually visible. But Adam Gage just kind of being part of this team that you know goes one year by year by year and doesn't have a, a general you know two or three year scope of vision. That's just that's what he does, man. And that's what he's doing right now. Oh, man, I, and so that brings us to your boys, and the reason you're here to talk to us tonight because I think if. You look around the division, the team that had the most interesting draft by default would be the Miami Dolphins. You guys came into the draft with a set of needs. Quarterback, offensive tackle, edge rusher, interior offensive line, cornerback, wide receiver, new color <laughs> scheme. Um, Make it stop. <laughs> po- possibly uh, uh, about, about 5,000 more people to sit in your stands every Sunday. <laughs> you get the point. Things were bad. <laughs> From Miami, okay? When I envisioned what Miami was going to be heading into this draft, okay, I was picturing what the Bills were last season. You know, coming, the, the verbiage was the same. Okay, I heard a lot of the same quotes coming out of your GM's mouth that Brandon Bean sold to this fan base just a year ago when he said, hey, we're, we're just because we're retooling doesn't mean we have, to, yes, it does. 
It absolutely does. It's try selling me a $12 million offensive line. Yeah, I, I knew <laughs> what we were doing. It was obvious. And the same kind of thing was kind of happening in Miami. You were seeing them start to shed some contracts, try to move some things around and position themselves to, I think what most fans thought, be bad enough to lock down one of the top quarterbacks of next season. See, when I look at you know notable selections in the draft, the most notif- notable draft pick of your class wasn't even a draft pick, but it was the trade you made for the quarterback who I think, if Josh Rosen was in this draft, and you've heard it said before other places and other publications, he's probably the number one quarterback in the class. And you guys obtained him for a second-round draft pick. What are your feelings as a guy who really loved Kyler Murray? And I'm sure at some points, I've, I've read your Twitter, I've read some of your articles, talking about this season, trying to prepare for being a down year. What does this trade for Josh Rosen feel like as a fan and also as an analyst? As a fan, it, honestly, so it's it's two different answers, so it's actually a good question. Because as a fan, I'm more excited because... Going into the season with Ryan Fitzpatrick, yeah, there was going to be those 400-yard, four-touchdown games that happen every, you know, once a month, whatever it is, and that was going to be fun, I guess, for that particular week, but then when you're trying to, you know, lose more games to acquire the first pick, that maybe wasn't going to be as fun, but at least with Josh Rosen, he's 22 years old, and that gives them hope. There's actually a reason to watch games this year and hope that they develop a quarterback because if they do hit on Josh Rosen, the resources they have next offseason, this could be a really quick turnaround if the quarterback works out. But again, that is you know a dicey situation at best. As an analyst, I watch Josh Rosen, and there is a lot he has to clean up from an accuracy standpoint, from a mental processing standpoint. The maturity stuff, I think, was overblown, and I, overblown, and I was probably one of the proponents of that that was kind of being too harsh <laughs> on him as a character. And I think I even exchanged DMs with you guys telling you how pissed off I was about that. But I think that might have been a little bit overblown. But I, I've watched two full games of his on tape so far with the Cardinals. I, you know, I've, I've watched bits and pieces here and there, but I'm going to do a, a really in-depth dive and have you know articles on each game that he played with really in-depth videos and, and, and analytics and all that fun stuff. But watching him, there's these bad habits where he gets kind of flat-footed in the pocket. He doesn't always, he's not always on time when it comes to receivers working back down the stem or off the top of the route. And then you look at what he can do in terms of accuracy, and you, people will say, well, the Cardinals' offensive line was garbage. And it was. Don't get that twisted. And they'll say, the Cardinals' receivers drop a lot of passes, and they do. Don't get that twisted. But you watch the tape, and a lot of those drops are because quarterbacks have to be precise in this league like no one, like nothing else in, in the world, even more so than like a pitcher, for instance, in baseball. That ball's got to be on the right shoulder, on the right hip. It has to be at the right landmark at the right time. And you've got to throw it with certain velocity and certain touch. And Rosen struggles in those areas. A lot of the times the ball's in the wrong hip and the receiver has to turn and do a pirouette and the ball gets bumped up into the air. And so he just has a long way to go. Now, the optimist in me says that this coaching staff can help him take that next step because he didn't have it in Arizona. But the pessimist in me, the realist actually, looks at the Dolphins' offensive line that has four positions that are up for grabs right now who I couldn't tell you who they're going to be. I know Laramie Tunzel's a lockdown left tackle, but the rest of the offensive line is hot garbage. So what really are we putting him into here? So I just, I think that it's going to be, he's going to have a hell of a time proving to the Dolphins and to the fans and to everybody involved over 16 games that he's your bona fide answer and you can pass on, you know, I don't, I don't think they're going to be the worst team in the league. I think they'll be bad, but I don't think they're going to have a chance at Tua, but I certainly don't think they'd pass on Tua almost no matter what he did. 
But passing on like Jake Fromm or Jordan Love, man, I have a hard time seeing him play well enough for the Dolphins to make that decision. Wow. So then I guess with that, the question becomes, how did they do in this year's draft, putting talent around a guy who, by all accounts, should be capable of beating out Ryan Fitzpatrick for a starting job? You don't trade away a second-round draft pick if Fitzmagic is the guy under center for you. You don't make that trade unless you really believe he's not good enough to start. I, I take a look at your guys' draft. You guys didn't have a ton of draft capital, especially after the pick. I mean, after you traded the pick away for Josh Rosen. So when I'm looking at your draft class, obviously the big one, again, another defensive tackle, Christian Wilkins. He was one of the big names at the defensive tackle position. Obviously, he wasn't as highly touted as Ed Oliver or as Quinn and Williams, but he was up there. He was up there in terms of the conversation and being talked about as, hey, if these two guys are gone, Bills fans, maybe if that's a position they're looking at, Wilkins could be the pick. So I did a lot of homework on him, and I watched you know, the Alabama-Clemson games. The, that rivalry has stood for a little while now, and I've gotten to see plenty of him. He's an impact player for you guys, and I think he fits my – if I'm trying to pick the best pick of the draft, he's mine for you. And here's, here's my logic behind this. Miami has had to spend a boatload of money on defensive linemen over the last few seasons, and they've gotten middling return on that. I mean, you paid $8 million for Mario Williams. That that crashed and burned. That <laughs> Hindenburg. You had Indomitian Sue, Andre Branch, and Robert Quinn, who were all pretty t- mediocre to terrible, but made seven-figure salaries. Okay? So under that narrative, getting an impact defensive tackle and not having to pay an, an absurd amount of money for him for the next four years... That's a steal in and of itself. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I agree. About? I, I totally agree. Sorry to cut you off there, Drew. No. Uh, yeah, C- Christian Wilkins is he's he's already one of my favorite players on the team. One for what he does as an impact player, like you mentioned, he can win with quickness and he can get after the quarterback, and that's something Miami really needs on the interior defensive line. As we talk about this Patriot scheme coming to Miami. It's not about having one specific edge rusher that can win one-on-one matchups. They're going to get to the quarterback with games and blitzes and find different guys that can stay in their lane and stay true to the gap integrity and rush the quarterback that way and play good man coverage on the back end. That's what this defense is built around. And Christian Wilkins can do that from the interior. But he's also a – and I I hate using this word because we talk about it, it seems like, every year. He's a culture changer in the way that you practice, in the way that you do film study. And he just has this infectious – personality about him that's going to get other guys to raise the level of their play and the level of their game and you watch him talk the guy can he can talk with anybody in the league he's very he's very very smart very you know nuanced in his perspective of the game and life and all that fun stuff and I just think that with what the Dolphins talked about all offseason with character and prioritizing football it was an obvious selection and then you go back to the fact that the Dolphins defensive line coach Marion Hobby was the was the, def- the defensive line coach for Clemson when Wilkins got recruited there. It, I mean, it was just, it was so obvious, and I'm kind of mad that I didn't, you know, go forward with that plan, but I wanted someone else to get drafted there. But Wilkins is a great spot, a great pick, and I think he's going to be a very good player for a long time. Now, if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one of the guys now wearing a Miami Dolphins uniform that you're not exactly thrilled about from this draft class, who would it be? I already know who mine is. It's super easy. Isaiah Prince from Ohio, from Ohio State. But I mean, I just, I, it's it's a sixth round pick, so how mad can you get about it? But I just, I watch his tape and it's, oh boy, it's bad. I mean, it's it's like watching, 
you know, Jordan Mills trying to block Cam Wake over the years up there in Buffalo. Oh my God. It's just every everything he does, he's off balance and he gets pushed around and he's falling on the ground. And yeah, maybe he can be developed, and that's why you take guys that late in the draft. But I watch this tape and I see a kid that just doesn't have a chance. <laughs> now, see, I would be inclined to agree with you because, you know, we were talking to Russ Brown about uh, during our run up to the draft about offensive linemen, and Isaiah Prince was a guy I didn't even bother bringing up. Because I figured he'd be so far down the draft board that the Bills weren't going to take a guy. With that little value on the offensive line, they would probably prioritize it, draft it early, and then address other positions. You guys drafted a fullback. You drafted a fullback. (laughs) Explain this to me. You drafted a fullback. I mean, if it gets on the field for even 20% of the snaps, I'll take that from a seventh-round draft pick, and we'll see if he works out or not, but you can definitely see the line of thinking there because, you know, Chad O'Shea from the Patriots regime, once again, pretty much everything the Patriots did, the Dolphins are going to try to emulate that one way or the other, and I know it's kind of funny to hear that because we don't have Bill Belichick and we don't have Tom Brady, (laughs) but that's the plan, and James Devlin played 35% of the Patriots' snaps last year. I don't think Chandler Cox will play that much, but he definitely will have a role in this offense as soon as this year. Uh, and a seventh round pick, you know, those guys very rarely make an impact anyway. So if he has any impact, even on special teams, it works out for me. Do you think that this class does the Miami Dolphins any favors immediately next year outside of Christian Wilkins? Or do you think that this is just, hey, we got a stud and now we're kind of planning for the future? Well, I think they definitely planned for the future like the entire offseason went because they did, like you mentioned, sacrifice their second and fourth round picks. In the the second round pick was for Rosen, and the fourth round pick was to trade back and acquire a second round pick next year. And they now have 13 draft picks next year with two picks in the second, third, fourth, and fifth round. So it's like, I mean, I'm, I can't wait for next year's draft already. But as far <laughs> as impact players, the linebacker in the fifth round, Andrew Van Ginkle, I didn't know much about him before I turned on the tape, but that dude can play some ball. And he's a very smart cover linebacker, and he can blitz and get after the quarterback. And I think that he, if it was up to me, his progress would get to the point to where he takes over for Kiko Alonso because Dolphins fans know this and they give me shit for it all the time. I can't fucking stand Kiko Alonso, and I want to <laughs> see somebody replace him and I'm ready for Andrew Van Ginkle to take that spot. So Van Ginkle in the fifth round, and Michael Dieter is going to start at left guard for the Dolphins too. So they're going to get a lot of snaps. Will they be good? I don't know, but they're going to play. <laughs> Listen, first of all, you're welcome for Kiko Alonso. That was somehow in a roundabout way our fault. Um, I mean, we traded him away for Shady McCoy. Straight up, because you know, that that's a thing NFL GMs <laughs> yeah. want to do now. Let's get a linebacker in exchange for a dynamic running back. Then you guys were dumb enough to pay him. Okay, I'm not sure. Tr- I'm not trying to rub this in, but then, then you all just apparently decided not to buy him any adult-sized jerseys. What is the deal with that? Come on. Uh, I mean, he walks around the locker room like he owns the place, and he probably does because he's a pretty strong and, and pretty well-built guy. But there was a point when I was walking around the locker room after a game, actually after the Bills game, after the the Charles Clay, Josh Allen. Short hop, if you want to call it that. Way to bring and, that uh, up, asshole. God damn it. <laughs> hey, well, you know, you rubbed in Kiko. So I gotta <laughs> That's get, fair. I got to give it back. That's fair. We, we, there was a point where we were kind of intersecting across the locker room. I was going over to talk to Minka Fitzpatrick, and he was coming across from the defensive end of the locker room. And he, I, we were like on a beeline to intersect, and he was not going to fucking stop for anything. <laughs> and I had to like basically do like a little sidestep shuffle to get out of the way of him. So maybe he reads Twitter. Maybe he's just that way to everybody, but... I don't think he likes me too much. I'm not going to lie. 
you lost a game of chicken with Kiko Alonso the way Kiko Alonso lost a game of chicken with Josh <laughs> Allen. <laughs> so with that said, final thoughts. Let's talk a little bit about just walking away from all this. Now, we've kind of recapped how we think each team did. I mean, I'm, I've seen relatively positive grades from the national media. That being said, I'm a, I'm a fan of some of what the Bills did. I, 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 but I'm always, I always tend to be negative about draft stuff. And oddly enough, the picks that I love never pan out. And the picks that I yeah. hate turn out to be players. So what the fuck do I know? But with that said, you, know, you see the national perception of what we've done here. Do you agree with it that everybody in the division had B- minus to A- minus drafts? Or do you think that some of those grades might be a little bit inflated? I think the Dolphins could be inflated if you take away the Josh Rosen trade because, one, he wasn't a draft pick. And, two, if he does, like I mentioned, the, he, the odds are stacked so far against him actually working out and being a long-term quarterback here. That I mean, if you look at what they get out of this draft class, if it's Christian Wilkins and maybe a decent left guard and Michael Dieter and that's it, then that's a bad draft class. And as far as, like, the Bills go, I mean – I think I told you guys this around free agency. I love what the Bills have been doing throughout the course of the offseason. Putting that track team around Josh Allen is a very smart idea. I think John Brown's one of the best acquisitions of the entire offseason. And then they come back and, to me, had one of the best drafts in the league. I mean, getting Ed Oliver at pick number nine, that's ridiculous. That was probably one of the best picks in the entire draft. That guy is a freaking freak. And so I think that the Bills really killed it. The Patriots, I just trust them to draft and develop guys that fit what they need to do. So I always trust what they do. And the Jets, and it doesn't hurt that I hate the Jets probably more than any team, but I just look at what Adam Gaze is doing. I see the exact same patterns over and over again. So I just don't have any faith that they're going to develop guys into what they need to be. So I think Bills, fantastic. Patriots, always good. Dolphins, we'll see. And Jets, you know, put it in the toilet. (laughs) So each team still walks away from this with question marks. Now, New England, sure. it's going to be the story, and this is going to be the interesting thing as we head into training camp. How does an offense like theirs, which has pretty much been the thing that buoys their team, how do they respond to the lack of a starting left tackle and a dynamic tight end replacement? I mean, yes, they did get to kill Harry, but he's not Gronk. And they lost another left tackle. I mean, a year after losing Nate Solder on the lo- to free agency to another high-dollar contract, they lose Trent Brown to another high-dollar contract. Now, you can only play chicken with this idea of we don't need tackles to be successful for so long. Inevitably, that comes back to bite you in the ass. So the question is going to be, can they construct an offense that operates without premier talent on the fringes of the offensive line? For the Jets, I see a team that spent wildly on replaceable options, and they're still weak, which... In the, in the interior offensive line, which seems to be the kryptonite for a, for a Adam Gase offense. So I don't even know what's going to happen to these game plans. I mean, I'm really happy. I've said it multiple times that we are getting them week one right out of the chute. Just so that they're, if this does, if Adam Gase does somehow pull this offense together and make them a juggernaut, we at least get them out of the gate before they have a chance to really have a week or two to test it out. And then in Miami. Seem to be rebuilding a roster, a long-term project, and then all of a sudden you bring in this quarterback who you don't really know if they're going to succeed or not because there's so little talent around him. And then there's the Bills. Now, we talked about this after the draft, but our wide receiver depth chart still lacks a proven weapon. And there's not one wide receiver who you can look at and say, 
Well, this guy is clearly a dynamic playmaker week in and week out. Now, as an outsider, I mean, we've talked these other three teams to death. As an outsider for the Buffalo Bills, what do you think our weaknesses are? Well, yeah, I mentioned that they, they did a good job building the track team around Josh Allen you know, this offseason, and that's what it all has to be about is how well do they develop and prop up this quarterback. But I think that also is where your weaknesses probably in lie both at the receiver and quarterback position, just the passing game in general, because, you know, you lose Charles Clay, which I don't think you really are going to lose sleep over that. Lose? But <laughs> we lost him. We lost him somewhere in an airport, like week three. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. I think they just trotted somebody, some random janitor out there wearing his uniform. Sure, absolutely. And I just the, the offensive skill set in general, you're going to have to ask for some pretty big leaps from some guys. I think the TJ Yeldon signing was like sneaky, really good. I was hoping the Dolphins would go after him because he can do a lot in the passing game. And Cole Beasley's a good slot player. I think John Brown can be good if he's healthy. you got the speed and Robert Foster and, and Zay Jones is what he is. But you look at that receiver group and just the pass catchers and who's throwing them the football. And if, if Josh Allen's not going to get more accurate, you need to have guys that are able to really, you know, create more separation. And I'm not sure that this list of players is who that are, are the guys that are that. So it's going to be the development of your passing game from both the quarterback and the receiver. Because I look at the rest of the roster and you do have some young running backs with, you know, Devin Singletary comes over and joins the, the ancient crew and Frank Gore and LaShawn McCoy. <laughs> and you rebuilt that offensive line and it looks really damn good. Cody Ford in round two was a fucking steal and a half. You go out and you get Mitch Morris. I thought he was an option for the Dolphins to play center. So the offensive line looks a lot better. And you go defense, you know, position by position, there, to me, really aren't any weaknesses. So I think that the defense under Sean McDermott will be good again. And the offense, it's all going to come down to how well does Josh Allen progress and how quickly does that chemistry develop at receiver. Because you're not, like, in a position where you have to go out and get new guys because they're there. It's just it's going to matter if they can actually connect with each other and have an impact immediately. See, I appreciate that. At least you're underscoring the fact because that was the one position that the Bills seemed to go out of their way to ignore in the draft was wide receiver. And they mentioned that, well, our board fell a certain way and we like the guys we brought in. Well, that's all well and good, but you don't have size. You don't have any catch radius mismatches. It's going to be really interesting to see what this cla- what, what this offense develops into post-draft. And I think you could say that for almost every team in this division because right now, that's the one thing every team has in common. We have an offense that's kind of in flux because of the loss or addition of new players. Now, when you look at the AFC East as a whole, guys, as we wrap this thing up, in the grand scheme of things, AFC East teams have not been good outside of the Patriots. From 2011 to 2016, New England was the only playoff team, and there wasn't another team that had a winning record in that time span. Since then... It's only been one team per season. The Jets made it one. The Jets finished with 10 wins but didn't make the playoffs the first year. You're welcome. Thanks to us. The (laughs) next year, the Dolphins had a winning record and made it as a wild card and got blown off the field by the Steelers. And then the Bills made the playoffs the following year and lost in one of what you can argue was one of the more boring playoff games anybody's ever seen because it was two defenses just punching the offense in the mouth for three and a half quarters. So this is a division that has been ruled by one team and the other three teams behind them haven't really done much to get better. I think that you're at least seeing a plan. You know, if you're Miami, yes, you're probably you're probably somewhere near the bottom in terms of overall talent. If you're the Jets, you at least see them trying. We have this quarterback and we have a coach that has a system we think might work. 
And we're going to go out and throw money around, whether it's in the right places or not, we have no friggin' clue because Mike McCagney is a madman back there. And then you've got the Bills who are taking this more, a little more of a nuanced approach towards filling needs, building an elite defense, and hoping that that can buoy what is a questionable offense. Whether this works or not, it's going to be, inc- I mean, that's going to be the story of the offseason and how these three teams develop to try to see who can fit that number two in the division role. I mean, thank you for saying what I think that, you know, kind of agreeing with me here that the Bills, I view them as the number two just based on what they did and based on how well-rounded the team is versus the talents on the other rosters. But it's all going to play out in front of us and it's going to be incredibly interesting to watch as the postseason progresses. Travis, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to just come here and join us. Where can people find more of your work on Twitter and uh, where can they find your show? Well, yeah, fortunately, I haven't changed jobs, uh, you know, in a couple of years like I used to. So uh, it's it's still LockedOnDolphins.com. The, the web page is doing really well. And also the Locked On Dolphins podcast, five days a week, Monday through Friday. And on Twitter, it's at Wingfield NFL. Travis Wingfield, one of my favorite guests that we have, covers the Dolphins, Locked On Dolphins podcast. You can find him on Twitter, at Wingfield NFL. He's going to come back probably in July to dissect training camp for the Dolphins. And as far as training camp goes, the only thing that I can hope for is that in New England, Chase Winovich at least gets heat stroke. <laughs> the stroke still happens. It's just it's just heat stroke because I can't stand Patriots. Wow. I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to this year's draft preview series. Now that we've officially closed the book on 2019, and we're looking forward to training camp. I mean, for a huge round of applause, folks. Brett Coleman, Matt Waldman, Ben Solak, Mike Kist, Russ Brown, Dean Kindig, and Travis Now. Thanks to you guys, we have averaged over the last seven weeks, or what, the last 10 weeks since we started draft coverage, 787 downloads a week, which is, uh, Chris, it's the most successful stretch of draft talk we've had. Oh, yeah, it's better, way better than last year. It's incredible. And thank you thank you to you guys for showing up each and every week. I, you guys are not only... You, I, we love the fact that you guys are passionate about what we do and that you enjoy what we spend time cranking out on a weekly basis. We've now hit everyone's least favorite part of the summer, the NFL layoff, the dead zone. Between draft and training camp, where everything NFL-related kind of slows to a crawl. Yeah, so if you pick up on our podcast this past NFL season, listen to what Drew has to say. As we annually do, I know this is going to break your hearts, we will be going to a bi-weekly recording format until training camp. I know! I know! A lot of you are probably cursing at the concept of not hearing Chris and I make jokes about his stupid hair and my bad sense of fashion or teeth. Don't worry. We're not going away. I know a lot of podcasts that quit recording during the offseason. But Chris, if, if I don't get these thoughts out of my head, they will inevitably turn on you and everyone else that I know. Okay, well, this, but, well, this really comes down to the base of the, of the news cycle. Because now that we're in OTAs, the off-season, news cycle doesn't fluctuate as often as it does during the draft, postseason, 
and all of that nonsense. I mean, we, there's there's no way you do not want us. You don't want to hear us like, oh, hey, next week do a, a a running back depth chart show and we talk about Christian Wade, folks. What this comes down to is that I'm never gonna put something out just for the sake of having it out there. I take pride in what I do. And so if I don't think I can create something that's entertaining, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it to you. Not, not to myself, not to you guys. So with that said, over the course of the next two months, we're still going to bring some great stuff to the table. We're going to have continued coverage of the stadium news and some discussion from some people who are really nuanced in this specific aspect of the NFL. We're also going to have interviews with some of our favorite guests, Reed Ferguson, friend of the show, Bill's long snapper extraordinaire, uh, Eric Mittenthal, the meat VP. Oh, yeah, your <laughs> never-ending discussion as, uh, is a hot, a hot dog a sandwich not? Not a- just, a, end not of just story. that, but also tailgating things and, you know, the fact that a hot dog is in fact a sandwich. It, it is, and this is the hill that I'll die on. And just a bunch of new faces that I've got in the pipeline that you guys are going to enjoy. It's going to be a fun summer, and we look forward to keeping everybody out there entertained on our way towards what is hopefully another step forward for the Buffalo Bills franchise back towards national relevance. Chris, I think we've done well, and I also think it's time that we get the hell out of here. Guys, thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rockpile Report. Hour and 40. Good. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.